Good morning. Well, I greet you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I also bring greetings from friends at Ligonier Ministries and Reformation Bible College. Uh, I realize you had our president, Dr. Steve Nichols, here just a couple of weeks ago, so we are so grateful to God for your partnership in gospel ministry, and I am especially grateful for your pastor and for a friendship with him these many years, so it is an absolute delight to worship the triune and living God together with you today. I would invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me now to Matthew chapter 9, Matthew chapter 9, and we'll be looking at just a few verses right at the end of the chapter, Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 35, hear now the word of the Lord. And Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest. Amen. And this ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant Word. May He add His blessing to us here today. Let's go to God in prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We pray now that the Spirit who inspired these words would come and illumine our minds, our hearts, our wills, that we might hear and obey the truth of Your Word. This we ask in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. Well, there are many ways to describe Jesus Christ. He is a humble servant, an anointed prophet, a faithful priest, an exalted king. All of these titles, as you all know, portray aspects of Christ's work as our mediator, the only mediator between God and His people. But perhaps the best description that conveys not simply the work of Christ, but the heart of Jesus is that He is a compassionate Savior. I wonder if you have ever thought of Jesus in 
that light. That he is a compassionate Savior, and he delights when you come to him in faith and repentance. You see, in the incarnation, the Son of God not only took upon himself human flesh, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In the incarnation, the Son of God not only took upon himself human flesh, but he also took upon himself human feelings. You realize that? This past week, I was teaching on the heresy of Apollinarianism to my students. Now, you don't need to know that, but Apollinaris was an old heretic who believed that the Logos, the second person of the Trinity, assumed human flesh, but did not have a human mind or human soul or human feelings. And one of my students, a young woman, came to me afterwards and wanted to know why it was important for Jesus to assume a human mind and a human will and human feelings. Well, Gregory of Nazianzus, one of the early church fathers, said, What is unassumed cannot be redeemed. For Jesus to be your Redeemer, He had to become truly man. And that includes not only assuming human flesh, but also human feelings, that He might be your priest who is tempted in every way, just as we are yet without sin, so that you can go to Him today and receive comfort and mercy in time of need. Now, perhaps you're here today and you think it's just a little too touchy-feely to talk about compassion and feelings. After all, we're Reformed Presbyterians, and we're to talk about doctrine. Well, this precious truth of the feelings of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus, was expounded brilliantly by the old Princeton theologian, theologian Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield, B.B. Warfield. And last time I checked, he was pretty good theologically. And Warfield, in a moving essay titled, The Emotional Life of Our Lord, the emotional life of our Lord, says this, quote, It belongs to the truth of our Lord's humanity that He was the subject of all sinless human emotions. It's a wonderful essay. You can find it online if you Google it, The Emotional Life of Our Lord, Warfield. And what he does, he goes through all the Gospels and looks at every emotion that Jesus exhibits and shows how he took on all sinless human emotions because in Jesus we have the picture of what it means to be truly human. Isn't that glorious? In Jesus we have a picture of what it means to be truly human. So while we may not think of Jesus as having personal and possessing personal feelings, a moment's reflection will help us see that the Bible actually frequently describes the emotional depths of Jesus Christ. And so, for example, in Luke chapter 10, verse 21, in Luke 10, 21, Jesus prays to His heavenly Father 
because of the joy he experiences through the Holy Spirit. Actually, his disciples have been out on a short-term mission project, and the work of his disciples promotes joy in the heart of Jesus through the ministry of the Spirit, and he communes with his heavenly Father. It's a great example of how our work as Christ's people is an occasion of the Son delighting in his Father through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and he has joy. It's an amazing text. Then in Mark chapter 10, verse 14, Jesus is actually indignant that the disciples would hinder the little children from coming to him. This is why, as Christians, we care deeply about every person who comes into our congregation from the least of these, from the youngest of these to the oldest. We especially love our children in our congregations. Then in John 10, 33, you know the episode well. Jesus is at the tomb of his friend Lazarus, and he weeps over the grave of his friend, knowing full well that he has the power to bring him from the dead, and yet in the face of loss, he weeps. Because as Christians, we grieve, but not as those who are without hope, but we still grieve. And then in Matthew 27, 46, in that moment of dereliction, when Jesus is on the cross, he cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We could go on and on and on here. But as we see in these select Bible verses from the Gospels, Throughout the course of Jesus' earthly ministry, he experienced the full range of sinless human emotions. He experienced love and joy and anger and sorrow. Do you think of Jesus in that light, dear friends? Do you think of him as a compassionate Savior, one who you can go to today, no matter what is ailing you, no matter what is troubling you and vexing you and weighing you down, you can go to Him and bring to Him all of those internal battles that you don't want to communicate to anyone. You can go to Him. But You see, if we had to pinpoint just one word, like if you had to describe Jesus in one word, what would it be? You can talk about it today at lunch. If you had to describe Jesus in one single word, what would it be? Well, a good candidate is this word here in Mark, 39, Mark 9, excuse me, Matthew 9. And that is this word, compassion. Compassion. Actually, Spurgeon's preaching on Matthew 9 says this, if you would sum up the whole character of Christ, it might be gathered into this one sentence, he was moved with compassion. That's the great Victorian Baptist Charles Haddon Spurgeon. So I just don't want you to think this is some loosey-goosey guest preacher here. right? I'm trying to show this has long been the teaching of the church. So in our text this morning... We see the compassion of Jesus here in a remarkable way. You get a picture of the heart of Christ. And so here the compassion of Jesus is displayed in his heart for his kingdom, in his heart for his sheep, and his heart for 
the harvest for missions. So let's look at each one of those this morning. First, verse 35, we see the heart of Jesus for His kingdom. Look again at verse 35 here. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. In verse 35, we have a summary of the ministry of Jesus. We actually have a similar passage to this one in the, at the end of Matthew 4. And if you have time, you can just flip. Just flip back there very briefly. Flip back to Matthew 4, Matthew 4, and look at verse 23 and 25. This is at the beginning of Jesus' public Galilean ministry in Matthew 4, 23. And Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And so his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee, Decapolis, from Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. And then all of a sudden he goes into his famous Sermon on the Mount. So actually what you're meant to do, Matthew is trying to show you this is a unit. This is a section from the end of Matthew 4 to the end of Matthew 9. We have these bookends that summarize the public ministry of Jesus. And in between, we get his ministry in Galilee where he preaches on the kingdom. And the summary of that is a Sermon on the Mount. It's a wonderful way that Matthew is trying to help you Uh, see the the ministry of Jesus in capsule here. Okay, so the end of Matthew 4 and the end of Matthew 9 go together. In these passages, we learn several important details about Christ's philosophy of kingdom work. We actually see the Messiah doing ministry, and we learn some important things about His work. More specifically, in Matthew 9, verses 35 and following, we see the scope, shape, substance, and significance of His ministry. Very briefly, we see the scope of Jesus' ministry. We're told in Matthew 9, 35, that He visited all the cities and the villages. He not only went to urban centers... He also went to outlining communities. He ministered in Capernaum, Gadara, Chorazin, and Bethsaida. That is, he ministered all throughout the region of Galilee. He went into the highways and the byways. We might say he not only ministered in the heart of Charleston, he came out to Mount Pleasant. And not only in Mount Pleasant, but he went all throughout South Carolina. He was thinking strategically and regionally about where he would minister, and he went not just into the center, but he went into the cities and the villages. It is the scope of his ministry. We see also the shape of his ministry in verse 35 of chapter 9. Matthew tells us that Jesus taught in their synagogues. 
Jesus was a traveling preacher, much like I am doing today. He would go into the synagogues and he would expound the true meaning of God's word from the law, the prophets, and the writings. You have a picture of this in Luke 24 when Jesus is on the road to Emmaus. It's one of my favorite passages. If I could go back in time to any moment, I would go back to that time. Because there you have Jesus as the master expositor. And he goes from the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, and he expounds the things concerning himself. Isn't that amazing? That's what Jesus did. The Son of God, the Word of God came preaching. And that's certainly our job today. From the law, the prophets, and the writings, the gospels, the epistles, the apocalypse, from all the Word of God, we preach Christ. Right? All the Word for all the people, all the time. That's what we do. We want men, women, and boys and girls to know Jesus from the whole of Scripture. Jesus came teaching. And that's why we still, in His name, gather together and place ourselves under His Word that He might be known. Do you know Him today? Do you know Him as He's given to you in this Word? Have you trusted in Him as He's offered to you in the Gospel? But here in Matthew 4 and Matthew 9, we see the substance of Jesus' ministry. He came proclaiming the message of the kingdom. At the very beginning of his public ministry, right at the end of Matthew 4, we are told that he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Do you realize the very first word spoken by Jesus in his public ministry was repent? Repent. That is, stop your sin, stop your rebellion, stop kicking against the goads, stop your rejection of the law, turn around from what you are doing and follow me. Embrace my word. You see, faith and repentance represent the gateway by which we enter into the kingdom of God. Right? They're the two wings by which we fly into the arms of Jesus. Faith and repentance, the very heart of his kingdom. And then in Matthew 9, 35, you see the significance here of his ministry. Everywhere he went, we are told, he healed every disease and every affliction. Jesus transforms the lives of the people he touches. His healing ministry confirmed the reality of his prophetic message, right? The, the healing ministry of Christ was a way of validating the reality of who he was as the Messiah. He changes people's lives. He's changed mine. Has he changed yours? No matter who you are, no matter what you have done, dear friend, what is ailing you today? What sin are you harboring in your heart? Dear friend, take your sin to Christ before that sin takes over you. Because his ministry is a transformative one. He alone can heal you from your sin. So in Matthew 9:35 we see the heart of Jesus for his kingdom and we see this encapsulated in these verbs he went he taught 
He proclaimed, he healed, he ministered. Why did he do these things? Well, it's because he had a heart for people. He had a heart for everyone who would come into his kingdom. In other words, he loves the citizens of his kingdom. You see, Jesus understood there were lepers. If you look at the account in Matthew, he ministers to lepers, servants, centurions, mothers, demoniacs, friends, tax collectors, sinners, little children, blind men, all kinds of people who need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ and he has a heart for them and he wants them in his kingdom. Do you realize Jesus has never rejected anyone who comes to him in faith and repentance? No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, you can come to Christ. But let me tell you, he's rejected everyone who's rejected him. That's the way the gospel works. None are excluded who come to him, but all who are excluded who reject him. So you come. That's how the kingdom works. The kingdom opens up the gates to all who come in faith and repentance to the Lord Jesus Christ. He visited the cities. He visited the poor. He visited the wealthy. He visited the obscure. He went to the urban centers and he preached and he healed and he ministered. And so today, dear friends, as citizens of his kingdom... Our job is to extend the heart of the king to carry out the work of his kingdom. That's our job. As citizens of the kingdom, we extend the heart of the king as we carry out the work of his kingdom. This means that we assure citizens of the kingdom that they belong to the king. That's one of our jobs as a ministry of this church. We want to assure citizens of the kingdom that they belong to the king. Do you realize that? Dear friend, if you are a Christian, you belong to Jesus Christ. He shed his blood for you. He is your prophet, your priest, and your king and your savior. But not only that, we tell strangers of the kingdom that they need a king. Right? Those who are outside the kingdom, we say, dear friend, you need the gospel. And that's why we evangelize. We want people to know this compassionate Savior. So by going into the cities and villages, we demonstrate that everyone needs the King. And by teaching and proclaiming the gospel, we demonstrate that everyone must embrace the King. And so as Christians, our work in gospel ministry is an extension of the heart of Christ seen in His kingdom. It's a compassionate kingdom. Oh, and I pray that as a church, you might be a compassionate people who exhibit the heart of Christ in all that you do. We see the heart of Jesus for his kingdom, for his work. Secondly, in verse 36, we see the heart of Jesus for his sheep. The heart of Jesus for his sheep. Look again at Matthew 9 and look at verse 36. Verse 36, and when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now, in the New Testament, the word compassion is used most frequently for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's used of him more than anyone else. 
the term is also used, for example, of the father in the parable of the prodigal son, right, who has compassion on his son when he returns and receives, right, something he does not deserve. He receives the embrace of the father, okay? So, it's used in other ways, but almost always this term is used of Jesus. This term, compassion, conveys a deep, heartfelt, loving kindness. It's the kind of emotion you feel when you see a person in need, when you hear that a friend of yours, right, has had diagnosis of cancer or has lost a job or has gone through a difficult relationship. When you hear something that disturbs you, right, it provokes within you a sense of compassion for one that you care about. But for most of us, when we have feelings of compassion and sympathy, we can do little more than feel for them. Well, what's interesting is that when the gospel writers use compassion for Jesus, they mean something a little bit more than that. As one commentator has said, quote, what we are to see here is not purely human pity, but divine compassion for troubled people. And that divine compassion for troubled people always translates into action. Right? You might, after the service, come to me and, and relay to me a burden. Right? And I would have compassion, but I can probably do little more for you than listen. I might be able to say, hey, dear friend, let me encourage you to talk to your elder here or your pastor here. So I could at least help by pointing you to somebody who can provide you support. That's about all I can do. But Jesus here doesn't have hollow feelings of compassion. His compassion translates into redemptive action. He does something. So throughout Matthew's gospel, Every time the word compassion is used, it leads Jesus to action to care for his people. It's a beautiful thing. He's such a good pastor here. So I'll give you a couple of references. In Matthew 14, 14, Jesus has compassion on the hungry, and so he feeds the 5,000. Then in Matthew 15, once again, Jesus has compassion on the hungry, and he feeds the 4,000. Then in Matthew 20, verse 34, Jesus has compassion on two blind men and he heals them. So every time Jesus sees a need and then has an emotional response to that need, he acts upon it in a significant manner to alleviate the concern. So here, in Matthew 9, we're told that Jesus has compassion on a great crowd. They are harassed. They are helpless. Why? Well, because they are like sheep without a shepherd. He, he recognizes that his people, these sheep, need someone to tend to their everyday concerns. Now, this is a well-known metaphor throughout the Bible. Uh, the metaphor of sheep without a shepherd is used to describe Christ's pastoral care for his people. And throughout Scripture, uh, it is often used of God's relationship to Israel. So the most frequent use of this metaphor in the Bible describes the way that God cares for Israel 
especially when Israel's leaders abdicate their duty and Israel's left in a bind, God responds and cares for his people because they are like sheep without a shepherd. They have derelict leaders. So I'll give you a couple of examples. In Numbers 27, Numbers 27, 17, Moses prays that God would give Israel a man to lead them into the promised land so that they would be not like a sheep without a shepherd. So he's about to die. They're about to go in the promised land. He knows they're not going to have a leader. He prays for them. And who does God give them? He gives them Joshua. Okay? So Joshua is partly the result of Moses' prayer that Israel would have a shepherd. Likewise, in Ezekiel 34... God condemns the shepherds of Israel for not feeding his people. As a result, he says, I will do it. Listen to this. In Ezekiel 34, verses 15 and 16, this is God speaking. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak. The Lord is saying, dear friends, you're going to have leaders that fail you, but recognize I'm the one who ultimately takes care of you. You have great under shepherds here, but you only have one good shepherd. That's why Jesus in John 10 picks up this language and says, I am the good shepherd and my sheep hear my voice. And I am the good shepherd, and I lay down my life for my sheep. So how does Jesus care for his sheep? He gives them his word, and he dies for them so that they can dwell in green pastures and enjoy still waters that they might fellowship with the Lord their God. So, dear friends, one of the things that we can do is follow the heart of Jesus and express tangible concern for the needs of God's people, his sheep. Right? You, you take stock of each person here. Right? As elders, as shepherds, we want to know the names of the people that we are called to serve. We want to Serve them and care for them and listen to them. One of the ways that you all can care for each other is use your directory and pray for one another. Send a note, send a text. Perhaps you've thought of a friend, a brother and sister in this congregation and you pray for them. Send them a text and say, dear friend, I have prayed for you. I was thinking of this text today and I prayed this for you. We care for one another. We help one another. We look out for one another. As followers of Christ, we demonstrate the heart of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus, by tending to the needs of the flock. The flock is where we see the heart of God demonstrated, right? As he tends to and cares for his people. Well, lastly and thirdly, then, we see the heart of Jesus for his harvest, that is, for missions. Here we see this in this last part of this text here in verse 37. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest and send out laborers into his harvest. 
All right, well, a crop of wheat needs workers to fill the barn with grain. Without laborers, the crop cannot be reaped. It's fairly simple. The point is obvious. There are people who are ripe for inclusion in the kingdom. Go get them. Go get them. And pray that God would send people to go get them as well. We need people to pray and we need people to go. Why? Because the harvest is His. And it's one of the functions of those of us who work in the harvest field to pray that God would send out more. It's one of the most basic things that we do is that we pray, we pray, we pray, we pray that God would raise up people from this church and go. When you talk to missionaries, they say, pray for us. Just recently, I was talking to a friend who works for Voice of the Martyrs, and the thing they say more than anything else is pray. Pray, pray. Do you realize that prayer and prayer for missions throughout history has always been a prelude to revival? Now, prayer doesn't guarantee revival, but it's certainly true that revival does not come without prayer. Why? Well, it's because God delights to bring in the harvest through the prayers of His people. God delights to answer your prayer to raise up workers for the harvest. He delights in that. Prayer, you see, friends, is a barometer of spiritual health. And one of the best ways to evaluate the health of a congregation is not to look at the number in attendance or the size of the budget, but to listen to the priorities of our prayers. What are you praying for, and are your prayers reflecting the priorities of Jesus for His people? Right? Are you praying like the Savior? So I'll close with an illustration. An illustration is tied to this. It's a story. And it revolves around the question, do our prayers reveal an increasing desire for the lost? For those who do not know Jesus Christ, that the church would grow through conversion. And I'll give you a story. A story, of course, from Scotland, right? That will make Pastor John proud. I love this picture from Edinburgh in his office, by the way. My wife and I spent three years in in Edinburgh. So in 1744, a group of ministers in Scotland made a two-year commitment to encourage Christians in their congregations to gather in prayer for revival. So from 1744 to 1746, a group of ministers in Scotland said, let's strategize and have our congregations gather regularly and pray for conversions, pray for revival. So as opportunities and schedules allowed... They agreed to meet on Saturday evenings, Sunday mornings, and the first Tuesday of each quarter for two years. Now, this had a profound impact, and it had a ripple effect. People were praying in Scotland, and it had a ripple effect in New England. Because right about that time, you have what's called the First Great Awakening with the ministry of particularly Jonathan Edwards. Edwards gets wind of this, and this is what he said of these Scottish ministers. They knew God was the creator and source of all blessing and benefit in the church, so they earnestly prayed that he would appear in glory and strengthen the church and manifest his compassion to the world. And Edward said they not only prayed for themselves, they prayed for other congregations as well. Like if you're praying for revival, are you going to be content if it breaks out in somebody else's congregation and not here? 
Because what we want is God to move, regardless of whether he moves here or not. Right? We want God to move. Now, we want him to move here, right? We want him to be at work here. Well, by 1746, at the end of the two-year period, a group of ministers in, Sc in Scotland were so taken back by the response, they decided to continue these concerts of prayer for another seven years, seven years of prayer. During this time, there were copies that went all throughout New England. Jonathan Edwards continued this and wrote a track calling people for prayer. Now, you think that would help him, but two years after that, he's kicked out of his own congregation. In many ways, he died never seeing the fruit of that. But several years later, his grandson said that his book, based on that call to prayer from those Scottish ministers, was used as an instrument to begin what is called the modern missionary movement and had a direct impact on William Carey, who went all the way to India and started the modern missionary movement. I doubt a group of Scottish ministers decades earlier had any idea what was happening when they gathered to pray. See, sometimes we can pray and we think, well, nothing's happening. Well, dear friends, leave that to God. He's called us to gather together and pray down the blessings of heaven for the building up of the church and the salvation of the lost and the glory of His name. And so in prayer, we appeal to the heart of Christ for the nations. And so may the Lord raise up workers from this congregation who will labor in the harvest and extend the heart of Christ for His kingdom. And as you carry out the work of the gospel, dear friends, you are called to manifest the heart of Jesus for the kingdom, 